Welcome to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. Food, sports, God, gardening, church, politics, music, movies, comedy, you name it, we talk about it. I'm Cody Stopper. And this is Craig Morton. On this podcast, we talk to writers, teachers, activists, and we seek some wisdom. And as always, we are allergic to big words. But not to big ideas. Profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. Hey, greetings. This is a different kind of intro to one of our conversations. Uh, usually we, Cody and I are on and we just say hi and kind of check in with each other. And then we begin talking with one of our conversation guests. And uh, over the last month, uh, six weeks, uh, due to schedules and, and a lot of bus- busyness, we've been able to have some uh, podcast recordings, but we really haven't been able to get together to do some of the other stuff uh, that Cody and I do, to have those conversations and, and to have some of that lead in uh, to the different uh, conversations and interviews that we have with our guests. And so since for those last six weeks, it's been kind of silent from here, I uh, wanted to just kind of jump in here and put up uh, one of our conversations we had. It's a really great conversation that I, uh, by the way, this is Craig, Cody's not here. Um, so it was one of those conversations that uh, I just found really incredibly enjoyable. It was fun and uh, enlightening in a lot of ways. Uh, one of the things that I do with my, my preaching schedule is I, we go through, our, our congregation goes through the new revised uh, or the revised standard lectionary or whatever it's called, the revised lectionary. Anyway, and over this last year, um, the gospel text has primarily been through the gospel of Luke. And so I wanted to read a good book uh, to help me get into uh, some of the background and to the details of the Luke Acts kind of two-volume um, work there. And so I was kind of asking friends and looking around and doing some research. And one of the books that came to my attention was a book by the name Embodied God, The Embodied God, Seeing the Divine in Luke Acts and the Early Church. Uh, this book is by Dr. Brittany Wilson. She's a, an associate professor of New Testament at the Duke Divinity School. And uh, I was able to get together with Brittany uh, through Zoom, and we had a great conversation about Luke Acts, her fascination with Luke Acts. And we even had a little bit of conversation about minor league baseball. At the time, this was several weeks ago. It was the conclusion of the minor league baseball season. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, her team, the Durham, Durham Bulls, were in the championship or had won the championship. So uh, listen up. Enjoy this uh, conversation with Brittany. Uh, if you're interested in some of her other writings, she has a number of journal articles. And she also has a, another book. Uh, that came out about six years ago, six or seven years ago, called Unmanly Men, uh, Reconfigurations of Masculinity in Luke Acts. Uh, this one came to my attention because the uh, 
uh, Public Religion uh, Research Institute, PRRI, I think it was, or it might have been a Pew Research Study, just recently as last week came out with some research that said that our culture is becoming overly uh, effeminate and with all kinds of other things in there about losing masculinity and whatever, um, it it made me remember the title of this book and think maybe we need to redefine or reconfigure um, our ideas of masculinity and see what Luke Axe has to say about it. We didn't talk about that book, but it may be a great one to talk about in the future. So I encourage you to look up her uh, her page at Duke Divinity School. That's the best way to be in touch with, uh, with uh, Dr. Wilson. And that's at uh, duke.divinity.duke.edu slash faculty slash Brittany dash E dash Wilson. And we'll have a link to that also in the, in the notes for, for this episode. So with that introduction, just um, we're going to take some time and uh, listen to this conversation that I was able to have with Professor Brittany Wilson from Duke Divinity School. All right. Thanks. Hello, this is Craig, and I am without Cody today, and uh, I have uh, shed many a tear already this morning uh, without his presence. Uh, of course, he is the one who is funnier than me, and he's the one who also is a lot more um, conversational. So hopefully I won't get overly professorial, and I won't ruin our motto of keeping things uh, um, using, not. I might use too many big words. And uh, with us, I should say with me today, since it's not an us, I'm so used to seeing, saying the plural, uh, well, still I'm representing Cody. So with us today, we have a, a scholar, uh, Brittany Wilson. Brittany is a professor of New Testament at Duke Divinity, and she has uh, written a couple of books that caught my eye. One had to do with... Um, Unmanly Men, which sounds like a great title, and even though it's not the book that caught my attention enough to read it at immediately, um, it is maybe something that might come up in a conversation because it's such a great title. Uh, but the book that caught my attention uh, was a book that Brittany had written called Embodied God, Seeing the Divine in Luke, Acts, and the Early Church. So, um, as I said, professor, author, and there may be other things that Brittany would like to describe herself as, and I'll let her uh, go ahead and introduce herself. Hi, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, I teach uh, New Testament at Duke Divinity School. It's a great place to be, and I'm thrilled to be here today. Well, tell us a little bit about where you came from. Are you are you a North Carolinian? Is that where you, is it North Carolina? Yeah, I want to make sure I've got the right state over there. So the easy answer is yes, I'm from North Carolina because it's the longest I've lived anywhere. But the actual answer is that I'm not originally from North Carolina. I've lived uh, all over the world, actually. My dad was in the military, and so I moved around quite a bit, lived um, overseas, lived in the D.C. area. Uh, but now I'm happy to call North Carolina my home. So you, if I'm not mistaken, did you get your bachelor's degree at Duke and then you went to Princeton and then you came back to Duke? Close. So yes, I got my bachelor's. I was a history and religious studies major at the University of Texas in Austin. Oh, Texas. That's right. Yes. Okay. And, yeah. So I'm a Longhorn. And then I went to Duke for my master's. I got my master of theological studies at Duke Divinity School. Then I went on to Princeton for my uh, PhD and then came back to Duke. 
All right. So that's um that's a it's it seems like it was a pretty direct path path to to be a, a scholar. Um yeah, it was you you never intended to be like a parish pastor, congregational minister, that kind of thing, or it was always moving in the new the, the scholarly direction. Yeah, I, I never felt a call to pastoral ministry. I really developed my interest in kind of the more academic study of the Bible when I was at UT. But I will say, especially given my formation at Duke and then Princeton and now back at Duke, it was like coming home in many ways, being able to teach here where I once was a student. I do see my vocation as a professor, as a teacher, really as my form of ministry. So it's not quite as separate, perhaps, as I initially conceived it being. Yeah, I really like that. It's very few people I know who almost well who who have that sense of who are given that uh title of ordained or commissioned you know to be a teacher and it definitely is such an important place to be involved with people during their own formation whether it be academic as well as spiritual and it's usually those two things are so uh, interconnected mm-hmm. so do, so so are if i'm Correct. You are a Wesleyan. You're a you're a Methodist. And is that has that been your background growing up or did you venture off into some other, you know, more adventuresome or experimental uh, uh, kind of religious experiences? No, my story is rather boring, I'm afraid. I was (laughs) baptized and confirmed in the United Methodist Church and was very involved in the Wesley Foundation when I was at UT. Duke is a historically United Methodist, albeit ecumenical, but historically United Methodist um, Divinity School. And this is, again, where where I find myself. So I've always been, have always been in the UMC. It's a good place to be. It's a good place to be. It, 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 uh, it's probably my second uh, choice at this point in life. So, <laughs> and you all were biased because of Cody too, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I'll just say that for him. Yeah. So, uh, well, I do, I, I, I am curious about your academic, um, trajectory where along the way, cause even the book unmanly men that I had mentioned is, is, is on Luke acts. So, what what got you into looking at at Luke and the writings of uh, of Luke and and what how what was the trigger there that pulled that in? So it was really when I was a divinity school student here at Duke that I developed my interest in Luke's two volumes in both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, and I became interested in Luke Acts because I was interested in portrayals of women in the New Testament. And of course, of all the canonical evangelists, Luke is the one who includes the most stories of women. So that's how I initially got interested in it. And of course, the great irony is that for my dissertation, I ended up not writing on the women in Luke Acts, but the men. (laughs) Granted, that was, I was looking at the men in Luke Acts with respect to constructions of gender and masculinity in the ancient yeah. world. But that's how I originally got interested in Luke Acts. Yeah, just the way you described that uh, made me think of, are you familiar with the work of uh, Cynthia Long Westfall? The name and sounds familiar. Her yes. book, uh, Paul and Gender, mm-hmm. where she picks up a similar conversation in the writings of Paul. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it, it's a 
it's a it it almost seems like a really good companion volume perhaps to that topic mm -hmm. uh, carrying that further in through the new testament writings so so that was your that was your dissertation work and you followed that and you, and, and that's one of the things that i noticed but nobody told me about as i was uh, my first time I remember as a young preacher i got into the pulpit and i'm starting to preach and I, it's like six months after a word i'm going well, what do i talk about now i've used up all my seminary ideas and it's like hmm why don't i do luke acts that's that's a two-volume work it'll get me through the rest of the year and i remember it was probably the the first time that i read luke 8 where the women who follow jesus are mentioned and it just jumped out at me. It's like, how have I never seen these before? And then I jumped back to Mary and went, wait a second. There is a very different story that's being told in this gospel, or at least a very different uh, emphasis, it felt like. And then that picks up and carries on in, in the book of Acts. And it was like, well, I don't know why I had never seen that before. But but you say there's also something about the way the men are portrayed in in this too, right? Yeah, so there's there's actually a lot of debate in scholarship over, so yes, Luke portrays more women than the other, than Matthew or Mark or John, but scholars differ on how they interpret it. Some think that Luke portrays these women in a very kind of liberating way, whereas others think that Luke is portraying them as kind of subordinate figures. And so with my dissertation, I really tried to kind of enter into that conversation and complicate the conversation yeah. by saying, well, hmm, let's look actually at how the men are portrayed and how they may or may not measure up to elite constructions of masculinity or what it took to kind of be seen as a manly man or a man in the ancient world. Yeah. And so that's why I kind of entered into that larger conversation and try to kind of muddy the waters, if you will. I really appreciate that. I think I think complicating things is really helpful these days. Um, it kind of gets rid of that. Uh, sometimes it's a monkey on your back, the idea of certainty. Uh, just, just yeah, muddy the waters. Complexify. Or that it's an either or. Right? Yeah, just, yeah, don't, I, tend, I tend not to land there, even though I think I probably live it. The either or I want it to be black and white, but I have to relax and go, no, it's 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 not that way. So that that sounds like a great book. And we'll probably we'll put a link up to that one as well. And I think is maybe going to be next on my reading list, perhaps, um, which actually is big. I'll, I'll just say it goes on the stack. Um, but it was the book Embodied God that that caught uh, caught my attention, partly because of the title. And. And then also because this last year in the lectionary was was Luke's year, and it's like okay, I try to read a um, a commentary or an in depth study uh, with each of the gospels uh, of the of the you know lectionary years, and so I was looking around and landed on yours and had some really good uh, kind of scholarly reviews. And I thought okay, I'm going to jump into it, and I was super intrigued. At the very toward the very beginning, because you quote a scholar just at the very beginning of, of uh, part one, and it's uh, on the title page for that part one of seeing God. And this quote just made me think, okay, I got to keep reading this. He said, uh, it is uh, Edmund La Baume Cherbonnier. I it was like that was close. All right. 
but he writes, for most people, the vision of God will be postponed until the beatific vision. In the meantime, we may well think twice before assuming that just because he has not shown himself to us, he is invisible by nature. And it's like, what am I going to start reading here? And it was, it it just drew me in, partly because the wide um, breadth of scholarly research, you know, Second Temple Judaism, uh, Hellenistic uh, background, uh, the text in in uh, the Luke, the and it was like all these different sources you're pulling together to to basically say God is not invisible, and that was never part of the original claim that God was invisible. Um, and and so that just kept me intrigued because I've always wanted to make sure that from my philosophical background, I keep putting Plato on the back shelf. Uh, I'm a, I'm a much more, much more of an Aristotelian. It's like, there is a world and there's stuff. And um, so I, I was immediately you know, hooked by that quote and just, it kept me going. So say a little bit more about the, the impetus. Why, why does God, why did you want to um, bring this idea of the visibility or the embodiment of God? Why did you want to bring that to the fore? Well, I think for me, perhaps this was your experience too, that that quote really struck me when I read it as well. And the more I dug into portrayals of God in biblical texts and portrayals of Jesus in New Testament texts, especially Luke Acts, I really started to recognize how a lot of my theological training, shall we say, had formed me to envision God in certain ways, like being invisible, like being um, immaterial, like being atemporal or impassable or what, you know, the, the list goes on, right. all of these kind of um, apophatic or negative ways of, of talking about God, well, what we can't really say about God. And the more I dug into these biblical portrayals of God, I started to realize how different they were, how they didn't match up to these very kind of more abstract um, kind of negative characteristics of God, right? And so, and again, by negative, I mean- By negative, you mean not this, not that, not- Precisely, precisely, yeah. And so this kind of abstract view of God that I had really wasn't matching with the biblical text. Now, of course, there is this tradition in the New Testament and some texts in the New Testament, uh, New Testament of calling God invisible, right? So in Colossians, how Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Right. So that tradition is there, but I started to look at how that's not the only thing that the New Testament has to say about God and the way that God becomes manifest, especially when it comes to humans encountering and seeing God. One of the things I think you bring up somewhere in there, and I couldn't give you a chapter and page number, is you talk about, it might be that word un, you know, invisible in the New Testament, and you um, go ahead and parse it through the whole Greek, um, you know, linguistic stuff, and and that, if I'm, it, it may not be that word, but just because something is invisible, the outcome is, or something, just because something is unseen doesn't mean it's invisible it just it's you didn't see it 
um, and it's that the uh, it's the alpha at the beginning of the of a particular word, mm-hmm. um, and how that changes the character. It doesn't mean that it's impossible. It it wasn't ontological. It was kind of situational. Right. Yeah, I think in those discussions, I'm trying to highlight the ambiguity of this term and what precisely is someone like the author of Colossians, what do they mean? Or the author of First Timothy, who also refers to God as being invisible. What precisely do these authors mean when they use that language? Are they speaking in ontological terms, like God's essence is somehow invisible or God can never be seen, like, like you just said? Or does it simply mean that God hasn't been seen by most people. And to be clear, in the the Bible and biblical text, there are sort of a a limited number of people who have (laughs) the the privilege of of seeing God, but it's not portrayed typically as a kind of ontological impossibility. And so I I query whether that word should be better translated as unseen, as opposed to some sort of ontological understanding of invisibility. Yeah, I've, I've mentioned in a couple of emails to you how I've really got to change the classic hymn from, you know, immortal, invisible, God only wise. I could be immortal and visible, God only wise. That that would fit. I wonder if unseen might be a better word there in the, in the middle of that. What difference do you think that makes for people to take, and and either for preachers, scholars, or or just those who are trying to follow Jesus? What what does that difference make from going this idea of that ontological invisibility to something more not seen? It's, it's, how does that, how does that change perhaps for some person when they begin thinking about that and the relationship with God? Yeah, I think there are a number of implications. First, the idea of God can do whatever God wants perhaps there can be a more of an openness to not shut ourselves off from the impossibility of God becoming manifest from God visibly appearing. Again, it's usually a a rare number of people to whom that occurs um, like Moses or Hagar and so forth. But, but I think it could prompt us to have more of an, an openness to that, to the ways in which God interacts with humans And I think it can also help to move at least some of us. I know not everybody operates with more abstract understandings of God, but for those of us who do to help us move away from kind of a kind of more spiritualized or abstract is perhaps a better word understanding of God and to um, think of God in more relational terms. God is someone who wants to be in relationship with us. That that leads to another part of uh, your book where you talk about and primarily Old Testament references of of God's uh, being present. I think you know, in, in, and <laughs> excuse me, in the sense of being embodied. But you take some the classical um, characteristics of God: wisdom, glory, word. Um, Try to remember you. There were a, a, either one or two others that you took. Spirit. This can be very abstract, mm-hmm. but in those um, those narratives from the Hebrew Bible, those are not just abstract, Platonic kind of mm-hmm. concepts. They are they are embodied in experiences. 
Precisely. They are ways in which humans can encounter God, not God fully, right? But they can still encounter God in these uh, embodied ways. Again, it's not simply, not necessarily at least, a metaphor or a figurative way of speaking, but a way in which humans can encounter the divine. Do you think when they're left as a metaphor, it leaves God more alien and less relate relatable? I think that we as modern interpreters tend to lean towards more metaphorical readings because it makes more sense to us. If it makes sense it, for, it, because yeah. many of us are operating out of a have more abstract understanding of God, um, a notion that really developed during the Middle Ages with the rise of classical theism among Christian and Jewish and Muslim scholars. I think that's why we tend to make the metaphorical turn. We tend to read them as metaphors because it makes more sense to our conception of God. But I'm not convinced that's how early hearers and interpreters always read these texts, not to mention those who who preserved and wrote these texts. Yeah, that that description kind of reminds me of uh, other other things I've read about, uh, partly as a critique of the Enlightenment period and mod- modernism, is this re-enchantment, to, to re-enchant, yeah, re-enchantment, uh, to bring back something that goes in a different direction. It's not necessarily contrary to everything in the Enlightenment, but it moves it in a direction that says not everything can be, ta- can be contained in these uh, classical theistic categories. Mm-hmm. Um, um, thinking of the work there of uh, one, one, for instance, is uh, if you're familiar with Richard Beck, and he's done some fun work on that out of uh, background in psychology, clinical psychology and theology. Uh, and how that uh, affects us too. You, it, to have enchanted texts makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not metaphor. There is something going on there. And even if we can't be precise about what it actually actually is. Mm-hmm. The, the, um, the Hebrew Bible seems to be more, at least the way I've interpreted it, or maybe the way that I've been raised to interpret the difference between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, is the Hebrew Bible seems to be a little bit more comfortable with moving to these physical manifestations of God, whether it be in, um, you know, first of all, a burning bush is a, is a, is a primary one, you know, and, and these other ways of, of showing up. Um, is that the case or is it simply that we need to look at the New Testament with new eyes and see that it's communicating in a way that it's similar to the Hebrew Bible? Yes, I, I favor the latter. I see lots of points of continuity between the way in which God becomes manifest in the Old Testament and the way in which God becomes manifest in the New Testament. I do think there are points of distinction. I think that for early New Testament authors, they believed that God became most fully manifest in Jesus. Right. But what I hear a lot in when I go to churches is that a lot of Christians today actually see that as a completely sort of new way in which God has acted, or it's it's utterly unique to how God has has acted. And and with that can sometimes come the danger of, sort of dispensing with the Old Testament or not really seeing it 
um, its importance <laughs> for, yeah. for the church. And I think what I'm trying to do in my work is to highlight exactly what you said, to highlight how actually, no, this is very uh, continuous with how God has acted in the past. Yes, there is a difference in how God acts in Jesus, but we have seen God acting in these ways before. So that that the the thing that caught my attention, I guess I hadn't put these pieces together, is just as you described that that idea that the incarnation is utterly unique, uh, and God has never acted this way before. I mean, I've heard that my whole life, really. I, you know, in various churches and and probably through seminary as well. But that really lends itself into a supersessionist idea that sets, well, the Jews got it all wrong in the Hebrew Bible. And so now we need Jesus move forward and get it right. Right. Rather than say there is continuity with the God, with the way God makes God's self present. Precisely. Wow. I hadn't, I hadn't put those pieces together. That's cool. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, so if God, um, Oh, one of the questions then with that, that I think it goes along with that is it picks up in the New New Testament, and I didn't really catch on to it or dwell on it very much until reading your book, is Luke's description of the way the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. And, you know, it's, it's not the only gospel where the Spirit descends on Jesus, but Luke makes the point of saying it's in bodily form, which makes me wonder how could Matthew have seen if it wasn't in some kind of bodily form itself. But not only that, but if I'm not mistaken, Luke makes sure that you know that everybody saw it. It wasn't some kind of exclusive beatific vision for just a couple of um, special people. Um, to me, that was a that was a, a key turning point to say, okay, Luke is telling this older story that does connect connect to a Hebrew tradition. Right. right. And I think that scene, it's, it's so fascinating and important in so many ways, but I think there too, we see another example of a way in which God become, can become manifest. And that's with the spirit. We see discussions of God's spirit in the old Testament, especially in later old Testament texts, but we start to, in Luke Acts, see the spirit take on its own agency in a way the spirit is connected to God. It's somehow one with God, but it's also distinct from God. We see the spirit, especially in the book of acts, uh, speaking like a character forbidding Paul and his companions from going into a certain part. of Yeah. So even though it's not, not visible, it's embodied. It's a barrier. Yeah. Like the spirit takes on this, this very anthropomorphic, um, characterization and with the baptism you see the spirit like you said descending in bodily form and luke is the only person to highlight that that bodiliness of it and there is there is a visibility to that that descent of the spirit in the form of a dove the bodily form of a dove so again it's it's hard to say that god is fully invisible, quote unquote, when you see this aspect or attribute of God, if you will, becoming visible. And that is, of course, the Holy Spirit. So so when I began reading this work, I'm thinking, okay, this is just a great way to get into the depth of the text and I, you know, you know, 
language study and all these different sources from around the world, different ph philosophical viewpoints. And you got Philo in there and, you know, some of the platonic tendencies and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, I'm, I'm eating that stuff up. But then after I read it, I go, this changes the way I look out my window. This is the changes the way that I, I evaluate my own experience, you know, with the divine. Um, was that kind of an intention or was that just kind of an unintended consequence of this whole study? It make, I mean, wait, if God's not invisible, if God embodies, it's like, makes me look over my shoulder. Oh, is God showing up right now? Where, where's God? You're, um, how's that affected kind of that personal spiritual pilgrimage piece? Yeah, it's certainly what drove a lot of my own work on this. So I, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that was that was your experience as well, because it really challenged me to think of God in different ways than how I had been used to thinking of God. And again, it really challenged, like I said, these more kind of abstract views that I have typically held held of God and how the biblical portrayal of God looks very different <laughs> from a lot of the more abstract understandings that that I had of God. It it's uh one of the, one of the thoughts it makes God more available. Right. God is not distant in some other realm. Right. God shows up. Right. Uh, for for a number of years, the congregational consulting work that I was doing was, well, initially I got started doing conflict transformation work when things would kind of go, when they blow up and then I'd come in and work at putting pieces back together. And then I realized most of the time that they there was a conflict, it actually had to do with the fact that um, something before the conflict needed to be dealt with. And so I started doing kind of like proactive health and, you know, and with congregations and, you know, like any counselor would probably, you know, or therapist would say, nobody comes to you until they need the help. And by then it's almost too late, but, but I, you know, I was working with these churches and working with a number of congregations who recognized they needed to move forward there. There was maybe new ministry development, new staff, um, new opportunities and mission that they didn't know what they were. They know they needed to, to do something. And one of the consultants that I worked with, one of my colleagues, had this phrase that he used over and over again and tried to teach the congregations to become detectives of divinity. Mm. And there's ways of seeing where God is at work and where God shows up. And then I started incorporating that language into our own congregation's time of congregational prayer. So where have you seen God show up? And trying to move it from the metaphorical sense to actually God has been active in unexpected ways. Right. And I think it's taught people to see things differently. Mm -hmm. um, we had a, um, a woman, for instance, who was uh, at a hospital uh, taking, you know, to, to visit uh, a family member. And when was she was told, you have to leave the hospital, we're closed because of mask requirements and pandemic issues. She had to go sit out on the street um, in a strange town where she, you know, she was far away from any place she could go to sleep and she was going to stay near her daughter. And she had this incredible sense, this physical presence that God was present. And in different ways, in different people, in different situations, God was there in very embodied ways. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it was just a very natural way of saying, this is the way God shows up. But it also seems like something that some other people would say, well, that's, you're just, you're just reading into the situations that's superstitious, you know, God's an abstract 
floaty thing up there in the ether somewhere with you know plato's spheres and archetypes um what if what what and so I, I envision this resistance to that god showing up stuff uh have you encountered resistance especially that kind of congregational personal spiritual experience way where people go no god doesn't show up that's that sounds superstitious uh, or doesn't sound real yeah i think i would respond by pointing to i think that in biblical texts we have both of these portrayals sometimes people use the language of transcendence and eminence right my my own work i think leans more into the eminence kind of side of that yeah i'm not terribly crazy about that language because it nowhere shows up in in biblical texts i right. but i do think there is this dual tradition of both god being hidden as well as revealed and in my experience, some people lean more into the hiddenness of God, the ways that we can't sort of find God or see God. And some of that coming out of you know, traumatic experience, right? There's a lot that can that can um, facilitate that that sort of belief. But others tend to lean more into the sort of revealed, the ways in which God becomes manifest or the way that w- in which God is revealed. And, but, but I think we have both in our biblical text and I think we need both. I think what my work is doing is trying to kind of counterbalance the tendency for people to think and more of those, those abstract or transcendent or hidden, whatever language you want to use terms. And I think I would respond to the query of, oh, is it, you know, are you imagining it? Is this is a spirit really becoming manifest or is that simply someone's imagination? I mean, that, that's always a danger, especially when we're talking about something like the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. There's a sort of slipperiness to right, this right. where you can't pin down and, the spirit. And that's, that's the, the caution. Point. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. But, but again, that's always going to be the case. That's why I think we need community to help us to be able to discern. I think having this posture of openness and discernment to the ways in which God is working is something that we best do in community. And so that's how I think I would respond that, yes, we have both of these ways of portraying God and how God does and does not interact with humans. Right. But and I, th- I think I do think we we need both. And that's people's lived experience. But if we immediately don't think that God can act in certain ways, are we even going to be in a position to experience that if we're not open? In that 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 sense of community and and in that experience of that eminence. One of the other thoughts that I had, and this was kind of a later thought, was. I wonder if this, and I don't know if you've had this experience, does, does this work flourish a little bit more easily in charismatic environments where there is a, at least my reading, though not being part of a charismatic tradition, it's like I'm looking at from the, you know, a few people I know and as an outside observer, it seems like there's a, a real leaning into the idea that God shows up in, in you know, visible, uh, embodied ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that this sort of way of understanding God and how God operates in the world is not nearly as foreign to some traditions as it is to others. 
think the charismatic traditions are is a good example. I would say Eastern Orthodox traditions. Oh, okay, yeah. Where they have a long history of seeing God in more visible terms and seeing a sort of blurriness between the human and divine with their notion of theosis. So, so again, I think what's most struck me as someone who works in a divinity school is how I think a lot of these more abstract ideas of God are actually coming out of <laughs> seminaries and divinity schools. So it's really made me question how we're training, how we're training our students and how that message is being propagated in some faith traditions or denominations. But I, I don't think it's, it's the same across the board by any means. You know, it, I, I hope your text is being picked up, not just in New Testament studies, but in, in theological courses as well. You know, just thinking about, you know, that it, it does offer a corrective to our abstractions that we have in our theological studies. Um, and it's, that's yeah, incredibly helpful in that direction. The other area that I'm that I think I see uh, some of this uh, story of of a this narrative, this flow of an embodying God through Hebrew Bible into the New Testament and into you know present experience. At least my reading of it is also a variety of social justice movements, whether it be creation, care, and climate justice, or uh, you know justice issues with people of color. Obviously, there's a different attitude, you know, from um, I'm, ga I'm gathering from, you know, unmanly men in gender roles and those kinds of issues. It seems like this idea of God being embodied can affect those interactions as well. No, I think that's exactly right, especially if we don't have this very sharp line. And this is very typical in 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 many Christian traditions, this very sharp line between God and creation. And of course the incarnation itself complicates that sharp oh. line. So I think there's, there's good precedent for, for getting us to think about the ways in which God is and is not connected to creation. But when we start to kind of uh, see the blurriness at times between God and what God created, there are all sorts of ramifications when it comes to something like creation care and so forth. I completely agree. So what kind of, what kind of things are you working on now going into the future? Uh, working on these ideas, working on something uh, new and, uh, or, or building on these, which, what, what is, what's, what's coming down the, coming down the road in the future, do you think? I'm very much building on these ideas. I find this topic fascinating. I'm not ready to let it go. I think there's a lot more that could be said and a lot more to be explored. I'm now looking at the New Testament more broadly and looking at how we see these different understandings of God and Jesus playing out in a variety of New Testament texts. So what does Paul mean in Philippians yeah. when he says that Jesus became the form, you know, what was, was in the form of God? Um, what do we do with these portrayals of God sitting on a heavenly throne in the book of Revelation and these heavenly throne room visions? And the list goes on and on. This is a really fascinating topic. So this is, that's what I'm currently working on. That that's good to hear because one of the thoughts I had after reading the book was if Luke acts speaks this way, 
And Acts tells the story, not only of what Luke saw, but Luke, what Luke participated in with Paul. And then you got Paul's letters. It would almost seem that some of this narrative that you describe in the New Testament through Luke probably pervades kind of as a subtext or between the lines, even in Paul's epistles, perhaps, or uh, you know some of the other writings of of John or the other you know apostles. And it's like, huh, yeah, that's if that's the foundation acts, you know, as a as a as a description of what was taking place, it probably permeated through these other communities as well. Right. That's what, that's what I'm finding so far. And I think it's a helpful reminder that it's really not until the second century where we start to see these more platonic understandings of divinity influencing at least elite Christian interpretations of the new Testament. And most of the new Testament was written before that and really reflect these very Jewish ways of portraying and understanding God, right. which of course has huge ramifications for how they portray Jesus and Jesus's own relationship with God. Right. So it's really a task of trying to uncover the very deep seated Jewishness and how new Testament texts portray the divine. And, and that reminds me of one of, what, one of the things I saw in the work, and I really appreciate it, is this, I felt there's a, a leaning on or a reliance to how did the Hebrews, the tradition of the Hebrew Bible, how did, how did they speak about these things? And I think these days, again, where there's these pressures um, to marginalize and exclude and to... Um, even persecute other folks, it's important to say, hey, these Jews, they are the ones who taught us and they have a way of seeing things that's unfamiliar to us. And we we need them. They're not to be excluded, marginalized. Um, they they add richness and depth. And I think I really appreciate your your take on the incarnation because it's like, yeah, that that's yeah, that doesn't have to lead towards supersessionism. Uh, so Precisely there's there. a lot That's... of awesome stuff in the book and um, someday it'd be great just to have a long time, long conversation to go, go through it and find out where you're going next. Maybe it'd be fun to catch up with you in the future. But one of the things we do with all of our guests, we uh, conclude our conversations with some, with some basic questions and actually they get, you know, maybe perhaps uncomfortably personal and don't really want to make you put you on the hotspot. In fact, we're not going to talk about uh, the, the Durham Bulls. And the uh, the fact that they won the uh, uh, was it the AAA national title? So yes, I'm so, so exciting. Do they do they have a really cool stadium? By the way, their the stadium is park? amazing. I love okay, it. Okay, so next summer, Cody and I are hoping to get a an RV and go across the country and visit minor league ballparks, and then go to those communities and theological conversations. That's great. That's great. They got the so bull. Maybe maybe we'll make our like way out movie. there. When they had a home run, the bull's tail moves and smoke comes out of his nose. It's quite exciting. That is cool. Yeah, that, that's the way sports needs to be. Not all this other stuff like in the NFL and the upper leagues and stuff. So, but so here's, here's, here's our five questions. We ask them of everybody. Number one, what are you reading? It could be scholarly articles, could be a blog author that you go to regularly. It could be that uh, pleasant and um, 
it could be that pleasant distraction uh, reading that you really don't want to tell anybody about. So what are you reading? So right now I'm reading, I'm teaching a seminar actually on this very topic that we're discussing today. So I've been doing a lot of reading for that in preparation for my seminar. But in terms of fun reading, I've been watching the show Rings of Power. I don't know if you're a Lord of the Rings fan. So that actually leads, leads into the second question. What are you watching? It could be oh, binging, okay. uh, you know, streaming, et cetera. So you're, you're, you're into that. Yeah. So I've, I've started watching that. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan, but I've started rereading the appendices because I'm also trying to figure out like, where are we in the timeline? There's some conflation going on. <laughs> Obviously I'm creating a lot. Is it, is it pretty complicated? Here. Cause I haven't jumped into it yet. And it's been a long time since I've read, read the read, you know, Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. And it's like, so I need to do some background study before I jump in perhaps. I I at least am because I'm trying to figure, I'm not far enough along to really kind of nail down where I think we are in the the backstory, but that's that's what I've been doing of late. Is is it one of those uh, shows where they're just uh, uh, making available one episode at a time or they have they just made the whole season available? I think it's being made one episode at a time. I could oh. be wrong on that. I'm only on the second episode because I just started watching okay. yesterday. Sometimes I let those get a little built up so I can actually like binge. <laughs> There's at least, I think, six or eight out right now. So I okay. think that was enough time for me to do a little bit of binging. <laughs> okay. So that led in, that was the second question. The third question, kind of similar. What are you listening to? Could be podcasts that you enjoy, music that you're, You've got on replay, uh, you know, playlists that that you go to. What are you listening to? It's so boring. I listen to WDAV. I don't know if you know that it's a no. classical channel that comes oh. out of Davidson College. And I always have that on in the background. So that's probably what I listen to the most, actually. That's all right. That's all right. Is it a public radio station? Yes. Okay. So do they have performance today on there on their classical station? I think so. That's one of my favorite classical music programs. <laughs> so I'm a music nerd, uh, but I listen to everything. But yeah, classical music is awesome. Yeah, I love it. Every day, I'm a, I'm a fan. So fourth question, uh, what are you drinking? It could be right now at this present moment. It could be a beverage that you've discovered and you thought, oh, where? I, I, my, 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 my life has changed because of this. Or it could be you know, a favorite cocktail at the end of the day kind of a thing. See, right now I'm currently drinking water, which is very boring, I know. But I'm a huge fan of tea and chai. And okay. you can see here I was drinking that out of my lovely Harry Potter mug. <laughs> but I'm also a Harry Potter fan. There you um, go. And the best chai I have found recently besides going to a coffee shop is the, the chai they have at Trader Joe's. All right. Fantastic. So that's, I highly recommend it. That's what I hooked on that. pretty much every morning now. There you go. See, that's it. So hopefully these questions are not too penetrating and too personal, but this last fifth, this fifth one might just push it over the top. So Cody and I were driving our bus, visiting ballparks, and we come and knock on your door. Where will you take us to eat? Oh, that's hard. There's lots of good restaurants in Durham. Hmm. Oh, it's so hard to choose. There's so and many. And we eat places. anything. 
but I'm allergic to scallops. Other than that, we're good. Do you like tapas? Yes. Okay. There's a lot of good, there's several good tapas restaurants in downtown Durham. I would probably take you there because you could have your choice. You could try a little bit of a bunch of different things. And then I would probably take you to this ice cream place called the Three Roosters, which is pretty fantastic. And they have fun flavor combinations. And is that the place that gained some fame because they had things like green, green bean ice cream? And that sounds like them. Yeah. Okay. I think there was like an NPR story. That just sounds familiar. Okay. So uh, that's not necessarily a commitment that you have to do that, but it's just an idea we'll keep track of. (laughs) Great. Well, thanks for spending some time uh, with us. Uh, It was really great to meet you. Uh, Fun conversation. And so now I've got one more book on my book list to read and read about unmanly men. And I think that will probably generate maybe some more conversation, hopefully in the future. So. Great. Thank you so much, Craig. And thank you for having me here today. Well, you're quite welcome. I'm going to turn off the recording. Let's see. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining Cody Stauffer and me, Craig Morton, for this podcast. We simply try to record and upload without much editing. What you get is live conversation with all its ignorance and insight, wisdom and foolishness, sometimes more of one than the other, and occasionally profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. Make sure to follow us on Facebook at the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment. And look for upcoming Facebook Live podcasts where you can interact with our guests. Also, we can be found on Twitter as at All That's Holy. Our intro and outro music is by At The Speed Of Darkness. Support At The Speed Of Darkness on Bandcamp and buy his music there as well as follow him on Instagram at at the speed of darkness. 